boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another year of Are You Not Entertained? We've turned the page on the calendar, it's 2024, but we are back. Myself and my two fellow inmates, Giles Morgan and Roger Mitchell. Fellas, how are you, Giles? Uh, good Christmas, Happy New Year and all that? Uh, Happy New Year to you, Grant. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm cracking form, actually. I thought you'd be very chuffed to know, lads, that um, I went to a football match the other day. How about that? Giles Morgan went to a football match and I watched Preston North End play, well, they got absolutely humped by Chelsea but my godfathers they brought 6,000 uh, fans down from down the M6 and I had no idea quite how much Preston North End fans hated Blackpool <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant I have to say first half all Preston North End both on the pitch and very much in the old shed end just giving it a lot of laldi the 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 Matthew Harding stand very quiet and then probably class came out but I had a lovely time. It was really, it was, I haven't been for probably five or six years and I bloody loved it. So that was a good start to the year. Marvellous. Good man. What about you, Rog? What do you have to over the holidays? Nothing much. We had a lot of uh, family here, uh, girlfriends and boyfriends of the children. So there was a lot of teasing and things like that. It was really good. It was really a nice family Christmas. Nothing much to report. Were they teasing you, Rog? No, they know better than Largely. that. Largely. Was that... No, 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 they, <laughs> they know better. They know, they, they, they know I've got a black cap on here somewhere. Anything steps out of line. No, love, lovely, and, lovely, and Roger, lovely get, boy and girl. Give us, um, give us an update on the book. What's been going on with the book over the holiday period? Well, uh, some people have got through it already. Some people read it in a couple of days. Others come back to me with, you know, I'm through chapter X, I'm through chapter Y. Uh, they seem to all be liking it. You know, um, I posted a couple of them. There was a lovely one from Sam Renouf from the PTO, uh, one of our friends, ex-guest. He was very complimentary. Um, so, so far, it seems to be going down very well, Grant. Excellent. The sales through the roof. New York Times bestseller list, do you think? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's a slow burner. I think well, that's what we used to say in the music business. It's a slow burner. Okay, slow burner. All right, slow burner. An evergreen. It's an evergreen product, as we used to say in the music business. Catalogue. An evergreen product, right? <laughs> like the three of us, hopefully. Yes. Um, well, Chess, we have a guest joining us today on our first bucket list of the year. Thanks to our very generous sponsors, Infinity Sports Cruises. And Giles, why don't you uh, let people know who we are about to talk to? Because it's extremely topical. It is topical. Um, the, the, the United Kingdom, our, our listeners who live in the United Kingdom in particular, will have uh, been very taken by the endless news stories of one particular story, which was the World Darts Championship and the emergence of a, I think, a 16-year-old called uh, Luke Littler, who got who got to the finals. And the World Darts Championships, for those who don't know, it is truly is a bucket list event. It's a modern bucket list event. It is one of the great Christmas events in the United Kingdom. So with all of the media ferrari and we were seeing this was front page news on the times and telegraph i mean unheralded unheralded scenes in the world of darts we thought it would be good to get uh, the ceo of the professional darts corporation matt porter um on the show to tell us all about it um 
the event finished about a week ago at the world-famous Alexandra Palace, an absolutely iconic venue um, in London. Um, but the media were genuinely in a real frenzy about the, the extraordinary performances of Luke Littler, um, who became the youngest finalist in, in history. And the proof point of that is that the television audiences were off the charts, um, broke all of the records for Sky Sports here in the UK, and it really was headline news. And ever since Barry Hearn got his mitts on the sport in 1992, darts has been on the rise and the rise. And the World Darts Championship is genuinely one of the hardest tickets to get in UK sport. So we thought we should get Matt on, find out what is the magic? What is it all about? How do they do it? What's what's been the magic touch that they've done? And what can other events learn in the future about, um, about how to create events that become iconic within their own within their own time. So let's find out. Matt, Matt Porter joins us on The Bucket List. Uh, Matt, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained in The Bucket List. You must be knackered. Three weeks, every single night, or apart from Christmas, I know, Ali Pally, two sessions, three and a half thousand people in that world-famous auditorium, all singing, all partying. How on earth? What what stamina do you have? It is a pure adrenaline rush, I have to say. Although I will quantify it by saying I am quite fortunate to not live far from Alexandra Palace, so that is a that is a huge advantage, and certainly comes into my thinking when people say, "Are you ever going to move the World Darts Championship?" But uh, don't tell Barry that. <laughs> um, no, look, it's a, it's a wonderful event. I've I've been fortunate enough to been to have been doing this job for pretty much two decades now, and. I say to everybody, if you don't enjoy working on the World Championship, you are in the wrong job. It is a wonderful event. And I think it's now such a fixture of not only the British sporting calendar, but the global sporting calendar that it's a a privilege to work on it. And that that, that isn't just me being soppy. And Matt, obviously the media headlines with with the young Luke Littler were were omnipresent, particularly from the new year as the build-up. Would he make it? Would he make it get to the final? You had a brilliant sponsor in Paddy Power who really took it to another level. That was very obvious on the television pitches and the promotions they were doing with charity and all sorts of things. But And maybe you might be sounding like the old, the, the late Jack Rogger who said that every Olympics was the best yet. But was 2023-24 the best World Arts Championship that, that you'd put I, on, do you I think? I think so. If I was going to be ultra-critical, I would say we maybe didn't have quite as many cliffhanger matches as we've perhaps had in, in other years. Uh, and we did lose some some big names in inverted commas relatively early, but those setbacks were were definitely you know usurped by by the positives from the Luke Littler story, Luke Humphreys coming to the fore, the the the, the Paddy Power thing, which you're right to mention, Giles, because you know sponsorship can be quite a a bland wallpapery type affair sometimes, and and you can easily pass through an event without really relating to a sponsor, but. We all know what Paddy Power are like as a brand, and they just brought this energy and connection with themselves, uh, with, with them to the event. And they didn't even, it sounds silly, they didn't even do it deliberately. It's just who they are. You know, they were very apparent, to, made it very apparent to us early on. They said, look, we're not really a betting brand, we're an entertainment brand. And if you looked at all their messaging, all their activation, all their branding, they don't talk about we're top price on this player or we're four to one on this or sign up and you'll get this much free bet or whatever. They, they, they just talk about enjoying themselves. And bizarrely, they, they didn't really want to do a huge amount with the players. They wanted to do loads with the fans, just with the event generally, with 
celebrities. The fu- they really encapsulated the fun atmosphere of the event and they managed to do it in such an organic way that I think the benefit they would have got from that is a lot more than had they just been pumping their odds relentlessly down your throat. So I think it's not just a, you know, it's it's not just a, a commercial saying or you know phrase to, to to thank them for their involvement because they really did have an impact. You know, on that, uh, Matt, can I just ask you something? Uh, because you know, uh, I agree with you on on, on party power. I, I think what they've been doing in general has lifted the the whole um, content marketing of their product and 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 indeed. So fascinating to hear them say they're an entertainment brand. I think they're streets ahead. And they, they grabbed hold of the event in partnership with you and, and, and really drove it forward. What, what I want to ask you, which is something you'll understand because you've been in football, you've been at Leighton Orient and everything like that. Do you think there's going to be any time that people, the government, you know, um, kind of like mischievous politicians try and say no more betting here, no more betting there. Do you think that's a, a general risk for sport uh, because it's so prevalent in, in the financing of not just darts but our whole ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, it's been mooted for a few years now, hasn't it? The reviews and football shirt sponsorship and, and things like that. And we've been we've been part of it, working with some of our gaming partners and, and various different um, departments of, of government and independent uh, authorities who've been looking into this sort of thing. And I think a lot of it comes down to whether, number one, whether the, the promotional activity is necessary and, and done appropriately. You know, we you, you see things like um, 10 to 1 on Man United to get a corner, sign-up offer, you know, that sort of thing. That, and, and we've been quite honest about that. We've said to our betting partners, you shouldn't be doing stuff like that. You know, 10 to 1 on Michael Van Gerwen to hit a 180. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's just not it's not appropriate to do that. You know, so be clever with your marketing and be en- engaging and entertaining with your marketing, but don't just ram it down people's throat, this whole concept of we're going to keep giving you money because we all know that betting as, as from the punter's side isn't like that. So you have to be honest and you have to treat people with a bit of respect. And bookmakers have definitely changed in the last few years, I've noticed. I mean, you know, the first time I worked with a, a betting partner was in 2004. And I, I remember the, the guy saying... And I won't name him or the brand, but he said two things. Where does my logo go and can I present the trophy? And that was basically the sum total of, of the of, of the aim of the sponsorship. And been there, done exactly, that. Exactly. You you guys know you, you know, you guys know that as well as anybody. And now that you know, you've you've actually got brands now, maybe not betting brands yet, but you've actually got brands now who aren't really even bothered if their logo's up there. They just want to activate and, and engage in, in, in so many different ways. So I think going back to your original going back to your original question, yes, I can see some sporting um properties having betting sponsorship taken away from them as an option. I don't think it will happen in sports like darts or maybe snooker, another sport that's under the matchroom umbrella, because we are as commercial operators, we rely on that kind of revenue to continue reinvesting in our sports. But maybe for governing bodies that that have a lot of activity at grassroots level or at junior level, that then the restrictions will 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 start to come in. And and to be honest, if they do, then I think some some betting companies would would really only have themselves to blame for the way that they have been promoting themselves so overtly uh, in recent years. Matt, can, can I um can I just set the table for the 
folks listening to this podcast, you know, we have listeners all around the world, and, and the dance was huge in the UK as it is every year over Christmas. But um, outside of the UK, it's not as big. Certainly in the US, where I spend a lot of time, people aren't as familiar with it. Uh, until, funny enough, Ted Lasso, uh, that little Ted Lasso scene in the pub with, with the darts, which was, which was tremendous. But just give people a sense of, of darts as a sport, because people think of it as, a, as a, you know, a pastime in the pub and a way to kind of you know, chat with your mates and pass a little bit of time. Talk about the growth of darts as a sport, because it's, it's, it's I mean, for us as, as Englishmen or, and Welshmen and Scotsmen, it goes back 40, 50 years to the days of Eric Bristow and Jockey Wilson and John Lowe and all these, these mythical figures from the past when it was a very different sport. But talk a little bit about what darts has become over these years, because it's an extraordinary uh, journey, really. That was the first line of a joke, wasn't it? An Englishman, a Welshman and a Scotsman walking into a pub <laughs> to play a game of darts. Yeah, well, we know who's at the back of that line, don't we, the Scotsman? <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> the, the advantage we have is that darts is played everywhere around the world and a dartboard is instantly recognisable almost everywhere you go. Everybody knows, it, it's a very obvious thing, a dartboard. You know, it's, it's, everybody knows what a dartboard looks like. And, a, and at some point in their lives, not most people, but a good, good number of people have thrown a dart in, in some way, shape or form. And I think that just that familiarity with, with the sport helps. Um, but our challenge is to take darts from being an amateur participation sport everywhere in the world and add another dimension to it, which is as a professional sport, a semi-professional sport or an audience, an audience sport, you know, where people are in, in you know, in the, of the mind to, to buy tickets to watch it rather than just play it with their friends in a pub or a garage or whatever. So we will always embrace the the, the grassroots of the game in terms of the, the history of the game, the social element of the game, the origins of the game in, in pubs and things like that. But what we're delivering now is something that we need to educate people on a, on a different level. So we, we've been able to do that through our global broadcast uh, network over the last two decades. You know, that's why you've seen the, the growth of darts in Germany, in the Netherlands in particular, because we've had rock solid broadcast partners who've been broadcasting to hot, large audiences. Australia, the same, you know, really, really strong partner down in, down in Australia and New, and New Zealand. Yeah, America's obviously a tough nut to crack and, and, you know, resource wise, you're talking obviously millions and millions of dollars to try and break America, so to speak. But so saying, there's hundreds of thousands of dart players in America. So our job is to now learn how to harness those and to, and to get those into our community, either through online, whether it's through a scoring platform or through streaming or through uh, watch and bet service or something like that, because it's going to be very, very difficult for us to get a mainstream broadcaster in America that's going to want to do anything more than maybe just the World Championship and one or two more events. We're producing televised events, certainly monthly, but on many parts of the year, weekly, for many parts of the year, weekly. And that's going to be too much content for, for the majority of American broadcasters because they're obviously chock-a-block with their own big sports and then everything else that's following behind them. So we've just got to keep keep chipping away, keep hammering, you know, hammering their doors down and convincing them of the product. You know, when you look at America over the last couple of years since COVID, we've done an event at Madison Square Garden and it blows their socks off. You know, they come and watch it and they've seen it on TV a little bit, but when you see their faces, Giles, you've been there and seen it yourself. What, you know, the atmosphere that that's inside that theatre at MSG is not dissimilar to what you'd find at Alexandra Palace. But for the first few minutes, at least, it's almost bewilderment because they can't quite get their heads around what they're about to become part of. And once they acknowledge that, 
you just do it, then then it then it changes. So we're trying to roll that out globally. We've done it, as I say, in, across Western Europe. We're doing it across Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Australia, New Zealand. We've got to get back into Southeast Asia because, again, there's thousands and thousands of players there. A lot of them soft tip players on what you would perhaps not be hugely familiar with, but like the arcade type machines. Um, but we've got to get them onto steel tip boards. Um, Africa, we've launched a, a partnership with an association. So we, we're just we're trying to harness the fact that darts is genuinely played everywhere in the world. It's just how we can move it up 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 the ladder to to be in an audience and a and a and a, and a professional sport. Matt, um, I'm going to ask you the the kind of like aim question now, which is the the juicy one, and it's a good one. It's a complimentary one because not a lot of people know this. Um, and I'm saying this in the context of things like live. I'm th- saying it in the context of things like PTO and, and challenger governing bodies. Uh, I'd like you to take us through what happened with the original governing body of darts called the BDO. Very much set out as most sports are, in a kind of like regional committee, very, very tight and flexible governance model. And if I'm not mistaken, that was a model that was struggling. You could say the same in boxing. It's all over the place, this kind of stuff. You guys come along, and uh, I'd like to say that what happened in the last couple of weeks is the culmination of what happens when people say we can do better in sport and we're going to show you how. Can you tell us and the listeners how these years, you said nearly 20 years, has been with regards to the challenger brand yourselves versus the incumbent, the BDO? Yeah, I mean, when I first started, it was, and for pretty much the first 10 years or so of, of, of me being in, involved in darts. This is nothing, not saying anything to do with me, but just through my own eyes. It was always a bit of a toss of a coin as to which was the bigger or better organisation and which world championship was going to be better. And we'd sometimes sit there and really hope that the lakeside didn't go that well because we needed to further our own cause, you know, and it'd be a disaster if they had a really close 7-6 final and we had another Phil Taylor 7-0 win in an hour and 10 minutes, you know. And it, it, was, it, was, it was a real battle for supremacy. But they ended up eating themselves. You know, the BDO was a was a, a governing body with a committee based structure, one county, one vote, and it just was never going to progress. You know, it was the turkeys voting for Christmas scenario. It was the Blazer Brigade protecting themselves scenario. It was the little fiefdoms that everybody had built up in their own areas, and we basically had Baza, who just decided he was going to do what he wanted to do. But the way he did that was by putting the players front and centre of it. It was about more events, more prize money, more exposure, keeping people busy, keeping them happy, keeping them well paid, because that ultimately is what your what your ambition is as a professional. So it wasn't about internal arguing over formats and uh, you know who was going to qualify for this because of that. Obviously, look, we did have little bits and pieces of that, but we kept that in the background, and, and it was important to drive the PR machine and to convince people by delivering the biggest events and by delivering the most prize money. And over time, we just got on this express train and just kept going and going and going. And then, as I mentioned before, with the with the broadcasters, they all came on board. They saw the product. 
we got a bit lucky. I mean, there was a few things where we can't necessarily pinpoint why it happened, but just things like someone wore fancy dress to the darts once. We don't know why that why that happened or who it was, but look at the culture that spawned. You know, the, 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 then players started to come from overseas and then players started to hit nine dart finishes and social media came in on board and players would connect with the fans. Our, our players are still very natural. You know, they'll connect with, with fans on social media and it, and it, it makes darts so relatable um, because you, you watch a Premier League football match and you don't necessarily think I can do that. But you watch a darts match and you think, oh, I could do that. Now, the chances are you've got no chance whatsoever. But you still look at it and you think you can do it. And that keeps darts with it within reach of you. So we had this product that we knew we were onto something with. If we could just keep the politics out of it stay determined with our goals and and just keep delivering them and and it is an advantage that we're not a, a traditional governing body we are a promotional company although we have a, a governing body that look after all our regulatory work all our anti-corruption anti-doping all our disciplinary affairs all of that sort of thing by being able to leave that to one side to let somebody else focus on that we could concentrate on building the sport Matt, let's, you, you mentioned um, the crowd there and the fancy dress. So let's talk about the crowd in, at the Darts because it's such an integral part of not only the event itself, but what has driven the rise of 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 it as a, as an event, as a bucket list event. You know, Giles and I are very familiar with the Hong Kong Sevens, which is a which is a very similar type of event to to the Darts in terms of everybody shows up in crazy outfits, and and it's such a party. It's such a party atmosphere. Um, so, so to just walk us through that as a, as as someone trying to organise an event, where on the one hand you've got a, you know you've got rising prize money, you've got a lot of serious competitors, and on the other hand you've got to walk that very thin line between allowing the crowd to be such a huge part of this event, and also, and I've seen this at the Hong Kong Sevens they're always going to be close to that line where something crazy is going to happen and the crowd are going to get out of control. How, how do you do that and how important is this crowd? Because it's, it's from the TV, it's just magnificent. That's the bit I think that makes everybody say, I, I want to be a part I, of it. I mean, I agree totally. And that is a lot easier now than it was 10 years ago because 10 years ago we had a generation of players who were used to having best of order, please, you know, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, you know, and, and that stopped working to be frank. And it got to the point where we, we said to our referees, listen, if you carry on saying this, all you're going to do is antagonise and inflame people more. So you've actually got to let them get on with it. And if you watch it now, you watch that Humphreys v Littler final. There was 3,100 people inside Alexandra Palace transfixed by that match. You know, they, they were sat there staring at the at the, the screens. I won't say the dartboard because no one's eyes are that good. But they they were sat there staring at it, you know. And, and that happens at the key moments and the important moments of, of the game. But let's not forget why people are there. They're at, they're at Alexandra Palace at Christmas, which is as iconic now as being at Wimbledon in the summer or at the Lord's Test Match or whatever. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a bucket list, a destination event, an Instagram event, whatever you want to call it, right? So... You have to give people the opportunity to enjoy that experience. Otherwise, they're not going to come back and it's not going to come across in the way that you've just described on TV. Unfortunately, now, going back to my point from a minute ago, the players now, the new generation of players, not only do they understand that, but that's also all they know. So nobody's coming into the sport expecting a, a church hall type atmosphere. And the, the number of players who've been around since that day has obviously dropped 
But even so, those guys are now used to it as well. So it is, it's a much easier conversation now than it was 10 or, 10 or so years ago. That was, that was quite difficult for a few years. It was a difficult balancing act, and it was obvious the crowd was going to, going to go one way. The football crowd came into it. And we have another important factor, actually. We don't let you into a PDC event if you're wearing football colours. You can't come in a, in a football shirt. You can't write a football, a football sign on a 180 card. We want to take that tribalism, take that partisan element out of, out of our game. That's not why people are there. Because one minute they're booing someone, the next minute they're cheering someone. They don't really mind who wins. And we've got to keep it that way. We don't want it to become a North London derby or a Glasgow derby in, in, in the darts. That's, a, that's not what we want at all, you know? So we have to harness the atmosphere that the crowd bring and the fun element that they bring. And, and the players thrive off it. You know, you see them the way they respond on their walk-ons and the guys who generally do the best are the guys who respond positively to the energy. Matt, you've um, worked at Matchroom Sport for, for many, many years. I think over 20 years, you were telling me and, I think probably from the three of us, we think that you've probably worked for one of the great promoters of the modern era in Barry Hearn. We also have a lot of listeners from from, from all over the world, and we, we as a podcast have been challenging rights holders and event organisations to 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 get real and to get to get with it. You talk about the evolution of the of the PDC and the evolution of the World Darts Championship, which is iconic, and you've explained a bit. How much do you think when Barry took on darts, he'd obviously had his huge success with snooker before that in the 80s, creating a circus, the kind of Barnum and Bailey of snooker, and then he turns his attention to darts. Is the advice to other event organisers that it's a process of evolution, not revolution? Or do you have to be quite revolutionary very early on in order to, to create the change? How, how does it work behind closed doors is really what I'm saying. Because you guys at Matrim, you're taking on... Um, other sports like pool and other big, maybe what some might call blue collar sports that have a real opportunity to grow. Is there a think tank that really thinks through or is it evolutionary? And then, as you say, someone may have turned up in a ostrich outfit and, and fancy dress was born. Is there, is there a bit of luck? I'm just interested to sort of get, get heads in. How do you make the magic? There's always luck, obviously. But I think the important thing is to judge everything on its own merits and not just to throw things into a pot. You know, evolution or revolution depends very much on what the product is and what strengths and weaknesses it has at that time. You know, the darts was a grow. If you look at 2001, Barry came in as chairman of the PDC. I think he'd done the international TV for them for a short period beforehand, but but there, there wasn't much of that back then, you know, obviously 20, 25 years ago. Um, but the product was a strong product. It just needed harnessing and taking on beyond the level it was at at that time. It wasn't a broken product. It wasn't a distressed product that needed revolution. It was an embryonic product that needed growing. And I think it's important to, to whatever you're talking about, to analyse where you are at that time. Because the amount of approaches we, we have from sports, can you do for us what you've done for the darts? And it's like, well, it, it doesn't just work like that. We don't just turn up and go, okay, let's have indoor fireworks and people in fancy dress and some cheerleaders and bang, next thing you know, you're selling half a million tickets a year. It might not be right for your product. You know, it might not be where you are at that time. And, and I think everything needs to be judged purely on its, purely on its merits, um, at, 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 you know, at that given point, because the darts was, as I say, in a, in a fledgling stage of development, having died off throughout the, um, the late eighties and early nineties, and then kind of reborn itself with, with the help of, of the advent of Sky TV in the, in the mid to late nineties. It was where it was going to go next. 
and Barry was the the visionary and the man brave enough to back it to take it to that level but Barry has always trusted his own conviction and always been prepared to put his money where his mouth is and I and you, you can't criticize anybody who does that because that is ultimately the biggest test of your of of, of your own beliefs and 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 views you know and and he believed in it and and he because he was one of them people himself you know he talks about how he was a bus driver's son from Dagenham and he walked into the circus tavern and he had a pint you know he he didn't walk into the circus tavern and think and circus tavern for those that don't know was the nightclub in Essex where our world championship used to be held before Alexandra Palace but he didn't walk into there and go oh look at all these common people I can't possibly mix with them I need to be backstage in the VIP lounge he walked in and said, right, give me a pint and uh, let's have a chat about darts. And that's why it works. And Matt, let me ask you a question about the, the move to Ali Pali, which I think was that around about 2007, 2008, something like that? Yeah. Was that, was that, that must have been a very conscious decision, knowing Barry, I'm sure a very good deal was struck as well. But was it important for you as a PDC to get a, an iconic venue a place that um, obviously had the Circus Tavern, which had been a, a driver right the way through the Phil Taylor years, I guess, so the greatest darts player of them all. But did you want to have a cathedral? Was that something that was strategic to say, this is our landmark for London and therefore the world? Yeah, I think we, we'd outgrown the Circus Tavern, and it was a good home for us in the early years, but we'd outgrown it. I mean, our, you know, we were, we were sat in porter cabins in the car park because there was no space for anything, and Sky, Sky were moving their production on and they were just saying, look, we just can't, we just can't put what we want to put in, in here. It's just too small. You know, so it was a great host for the event, a fantastic atmosphere in there, but it was, it was pure darts. And once, once the world championship started to transcend darts a little bit and it became an international event, it needed a home fitting of the name. And obviously Ali Pali is an iconic venue. It's a much different venue now, by the way, to what it was in 2007, you know, now it's a thriving event space, indoor, outdoor, summer, winter. You know, you can go and see huge concerts, firework displays, family events. Ali Pali is a is a vibrant centre, not just for North London, but for but for the wider wider area. But back in two thousand and seven, I think it was the odd model railway exhibition and a little bit of knit and stitch. It was it was it was quiet, and that's being complimentary, you know. Um, but I think. It, that that in, that was a, an advantage for us because it allowed us to go in there and kind of do what we wanted to do, and and you know that they, they were very accommodating and and very positive, and that's why we've had such a long relationship with them and one that will continue many years in the future because now it is the the two things are just synonymous with each other. But it it you know it was the right it was the right venue for us to move to because of its location. And it's history. And don't forget as well, Ali Pali, there was 15,000 people in Ali Pali in the 70s watching darts. You know, two minutes on YouTube and you'd be able to see some amazing clips of people sat there in, in rows watching guys in suits with a fag in their hand throwing, I'm going to say 75 averages, but, you know, <laughs> maybe doing them a slight disservice. But it was remarkably different, you know. Matt, let, let me ask you about what we've just witnessed this last couple of weeks because... You know, you had this this period where um, Phil Taylor was so dominant in darts, and and if you if you weren't following darts, you know what he did in terms of domination is is up there with any person who's dominated any sport in my lifetime. It was extraordinary the the, the records he put up, his longevity, uh, and as I say, his dominance. It was just remarkable to watch. And so darts had this 
this kind of superstar that you could pin everything around and everybody, even if you weren't a dance fan, had heard of Phil the Power Taylor because of what he'd done. You know, Phil obviously retired a few years ago and you've, and you've got this kind of, this group of, of well-known, if, you, if, you're, if you're a darts fan or have, are aware of darts, you know the Michael Van Goins and the, you know, there's, a, there's a half a dozen guys who are, who are, who are well-known. But what we've seen this last couple of weeks with the emergence of Luke Littler is, is extraordinary. And so I'm wondering from darts' perspective, how do you go about capturing that lightning in a bottle and, and saying, okay, we have a new name here who is 16 years old, has captured the imagination of not just the whole of Britain, but anyone watching darts. How do you think about him as a, as a property of darts in terms of how do we make sure that A, we capitalise on this, but B, we don't burn this guy out, we don't you know, over-amplify you know, over him. How do, you, how do you think about that as an as a, as a, as a administrator of an administration? Yeah, it's, a, it's, like a, 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 it's a difficult challenge and one that's obviously been thrust on us completely unexpectedly over the last over the last week or so. I mean, it's, we, we knew about Luke's ability um, before the event because uh, of what he'd done on our development tour, which is for 16 to 23-year-olds since he turned 16 last January. And he took it, he, he just destroyed it. Um, and ironically, because of what he's achieved, he now can't play on it anymore, even though he's still eligible for another seven years. So he's, he waited his, almost his entire teenage life to play on the development tour. And he's off it as quickly as he's on it, but I'm sure he's not complaining. Anyway, he... Um, he is he is a phenomenal talent, and I'm not going to say there's plenty more behind him, but there are other kids who are coming through. We know from our from our own ranks. So I think it's it's part of the transition of the sport and part of the change away from the average age of the top pro being like Phil was when he retired in his fifties, been playing for thirty years, started in a pub, you know journeyed all around the world doing what he needed to do sharing rooms splitting prize money all of that sort of thing now it's kids who learn on their with the board on the back of their bedroom door and they just hammer the the, the treble 20 for hours and hours and hours and then they turn up at tournaments and do exactly the same thing so it's it's as much about luke as it is about the way the sport's changed and about who's coming into it now you know that the, the percentage of players in our world championship who are under 30 and who haven't ever been part of a pub team. Well, that, it's a huge number. Compare that with, again, 10, 10 20 years ago. And it's the way that the, the, the sport's going now. Obviously, look, pub, darts isn't played as much in pubs anymore, but it kind of doesn't need to be for us to continue to produce talent. So with Luke, we've got a huge duty of care, and it's a huge responsibility for us. He's 17 in, in, you know, in mid-January. And we've not committed him to anything beyond the end of May this year because we want to see how the first few months go with the challenges that are going to be on him. We're fortunate in that he's got a good manager. He manages a couple of other top players as well, so he knows how the industry works. And a solid family unit who are very trusting and, and, and also you know kind of respect his maturity, even though he is still a, you know, a teenager. But also Luke's shown over the last couple of weeks how unflappable he is in in the, the conditions that he was put into and he'd already become a professional player before the world championship so you have to ask yourself is it right to hold him back is it is it appropriate to deny him the opportunity to earn the hundreds of thousands of pounds that he will earn over the next few months because in in a few weeks time you know he could be married driving a car he could be getting a mortgage what you know it, it could be it, you know 
he, he, he could be the same as the rest of us. Just happens that he's achieving something towards his peak very, very early. So we have to manage that. And we've got welfare support and, and psychological support, and he's going to work with a nutritionist and uh, all, all, the, all the right things to make sure that he progresses it in the right way. But if it does become a little bit too much for him, then we'll pull him back a little bit, you know, and we'll give him some time to breathe and some time to, to himself. Because don't forget, Michael Van Gerwen came through as a 17-year-old. He was destroying top, top players when he was 17. And then he had a number of very lean years until he until he he, he really sort of progressed to the, to the top level of the game. So we've got to make sure that Luke's progression is is managed and, and also done at the right pace. Um, but I think that the the point of Luke is that he showed where the sport is now compared to to where it was before. Matt, I've got a couple of questions that I think you know you, you're a listener to Ian, so you know the audience. You know everybody in sport is wondering about revenue models, um, fan engagement. If you look these days, everybody in our dog has put out a list of the ten things you need to do on fan engagement and where the sport's going and everything like that. I, I want to ask you a little bit how you guys see it. Um, the idea of how you get that direct relationship with fans, are the new fans different? And put that in the context of what I think has been an excellent TV strategy. You know, you've had Sky. I think you've also got free to air with ITV in some in some respect. And obviously you already mentioned the international side. I noticed with interest some MP said, it, oh, it should all be on free to air, the final and everything like that, which is classic. You know, when the, the, the bandwagon rolls up, all these kind of people jump on, whereas, you know, Sky was there when nobody else was. But can you tell us a little bit the strategy you guys have got for media, fan engagement and new audiences and all these whiz buying new widgets that everybody talks about. What are you guys thinking about 2024? We keep it quite simple, really. We, we, we try to give people what they want, not what we want to give them, you know, and, and because of the people have got a strong, a strong engagement with us. Our, our, our database is, is substantial and we're very well learned about what people what our, who our people are and what they want. We put a lot of effort into that. We know the profile. We know how that profile varies across different regions, at different countries, different events even. And we can communicate with people on different levels. You know, we don't take ourselves too seriously on social media. Although darts has always been a sport that people have been happy to have to have a little pop at. We 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 don't go too far, obviously that way. But in the same vein, we don't take ourselves too seriously either. And because. We have that advantage where people don't generally mind who wins and loses too much, which which means that people don't generally leave their engagement with us angry because of the result. If you look at football or team sports, people are invariably annoyed. You know, they, they generally go to the matches not to have a good time anyway. They go to the matches to have a shout and, and, and criticise and abuse. People don't really come to the darts to do that. You know, you can talk about Gerwin Price. If you look at Gerwin Price, he gets a little bit of booing on his walk-on. And, that, and watch his last few matches, if you don't believe me. Doesn't really get booed, you know, at all now. He did for a while, did for a while, and he's grown. He's gone through that phase. And 99.9% .9 of our players don't get booed because the crowd are fine with them. They, they don't mind if they win. They don't mind if they lose. They cheer when they do well. And they have a joke with them when they miss a nine data and, and whatever. So we have that, we have that advantage. And we... We take that and we use it to create a, a platform of fun and a platform of interaction where we ask, you know, we, we talk we talk to our fans a lot um, 
directly and indirectly about what they want to see happen and how they how they found it when they came and things like that. And then we use that information to to mould what we do going forward. We don't just impose things on them. Um, but it, it is easier because they don't care about the result. That you know, I have to admit that 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 does really help us to to engage with people and leave them with a positive impression of us. Matt, you mentioned um, entertainment, and and it seems that darts has always had that level of entertainment back of, even in the eighties, obviously um, with uh, with Bullseye. And I'm talking that's a different era to now. Um, I believe the world um, championship trophy is the Sid Waddell trophy. Um, people like Sid, presumably, were enormously influential in terms of setting the uh, the mood for the sport over the years in terms of this is a sport, as you say, it, it's binary, someone's got to win or lose, but no one really minds other than the individual. I mean, they're still trotting out some of Sid's quotes, which I still believe are the greatest commentary quotes in the history of sport, and they should be put in a museum for all time. But I listened to the commentary and I watched a lot um, over over this year. It, it feels like a sport that's now really grown up. The entertainment comes from the crowd, but the way that the commentators, the way that the uh, uh, people are talking about it, the, the professionals, it's become very, very, it's become a serious business. So you've got this wonderful combination of the fans having a wonderful time, but the athletes, if that's the right word, but certainly the the, the players and those who are commenting on them are taking it very seriously. It's an amazing evolution. Yeah, it is. And, and Sid was obviously, you know, he was along with, you know, I don't know, John Motson, David Coleman, Murray Walker. He was the voice of his sport, wasn't he? And, and everybody who was watching sport or darts at the time knew, knew Sid and, and knew what he was all about. But Sid painted pictures with words. What he didn't do necessarily was analyse or... Um, give you any kind of insight because that wasn't his game. That wasn't what he was there to do. He was there just to just to describe what was unfolding in front of him. If you look at the sports fan now, in the age of social media and the age of data and the age of the internet, they are far more educated into what they're watching, and so they want analytics about uh, technique. They want to know statistical information about what's helping you succeed, what's helping you fail, whether it's because it's helping them bet, whether it's because it's helping them have a conversation with their friends, whether it's because it's helping them post a message on social media. Fans are different now to what they were before. People just used to watch it because they enjoyed it. Now they want another layer of interaction, and the commentators can give them that through the, the what they say, obviously, but also the graphic that appear on the screen and what can then be translated into a second screen uh, online with them. So I think you, you'll never get another Sid Waddell in darts, but I don't know how Sid would have been with, with that world. I don't think Sid would have enjoyed sitting there reeling off 10 stats in a row about finishes and averages and, and things like that. I think he would have rather told you which medieval king the player looked like while it, while he was on stage. And, and, and that was absolutely right, you know, but, um, but it's changed now, hasn't it? It's different. Matt, um, an important question, this one, I think, um, again, a bit linked to my last one. Uh, I'm a great believer, uh, probably uh, contrary to what people think, uh, in in women uh, getting involved in sport. And um, golf is uh, one sport that I think's missed a trick in that. Um, you guys in darts, can you tell us how you view the possibility of 
mixed tournaments, uh, all of that kind of thing? Because it seems to me there's very little barrier to entry there. What What is your strategy for, for the women's game? You know, obviously we saw Fallon do so, so well. How, how, how do you how do you see that going forward? So it's, it's probably not well known enough, which is our fault. But basically every PDC event since day one has been open to women players as well as male players. That we've never had men's tournaments and women's tournaments, we, or we do now have women's tournaments. So, so I'm, I'm not said that right, but we we we've never had men only tournaments. What we haven't had is women playing in our tournaments. So they've just looked like men only tournaments. So we took a view on it a few years ago and said when the when the BDO was was sort of collapsing and it was like where are women going to be able to play darts here? So we introduced the the qualification for the for the world championship and then we introduced the women's series which is a uh, a series of events 24 events ten thousand pound prize money per event culminating in qualification for the world championship the grand slam and then our only women only tv tournament which is the women's world match play which the top eight women in the world qualify for uh, Bo greaves is the current champion fallon sherrick won the previous year the aim of that structure is to give women a realistic pathway into the top of our pyramid. Because what we found, again, doing research in the same way we did with fans, we did it with, with women players. What we found was that it was quite intimidating for a woman to go into an all-male environment as a player. And it wasn't something they were hugely comfortable doing, maybe either not confident from a personal level or, or a sporting level. So, we knew there was a lot of interest from women in playing darts, and that was borne out by the number of women that were playing in the in the more organised amateur events. So by founding the Women's Series, which is now up to over 100 entries uh, per, per tournament, we've given women players a platform to play within our standards, as in the way we stage the events, is stage exactly the same as, as, the, as the Pro Tour events are staged. Um, and they can then get a feel for how confident they are, how comfortable they are, how good they are uh, and then they can decide if they want to move on and play in Q school if they want to play in our challenge tour which is our secondary tour or the development tour if they're under 23 years old and then gradually integrate into the main system we take a view that anything like this whether it's a new market of a, a territory or a new demographic is going to take 10 years to 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 work you know that's being shown by what's happening now in germany it's shown by standard a player that's coming out of Asia. We first started investing in Asian players about 10 years ago. Australia, the same prior to that. So we're not expecting there to be 10 women in the top 50 of the world within the next two years, but maybe within the next seven to eight years. And, and Fallon was extremely unlucky because what she did, probably Luke, what Luke Little has just achieved is the only thing that sparked more interest than what Fallon what Fallon did so that so what she did was off the charts in terms of in terms of level but then of course Covid hit six weeks two months later and just pulled the rug from under her feet you know Fallon was invited into everything we were going to be taking her around the world there was media interest blah 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 and it all got taken away from her so she was extremely unlucky and when the opportunity came for her to do that again in 2021 the moment had passed and, and she wasn't on the t on top of her game and it, it didn't quite work in the same way. But there'll be another Fallon, whether it's Bo Greaves or somebody else coming through, and they'll be the beneficiaries of the building blocks that are being put in place now. So our aim is to have women integrated into the sport at the top end, but we're also trying to give them a, a route in that's a little bit more comfortable for them uh, as things stand. And I, and I, I hope that doesn't sound patronising because I don't mean it to. 
Matt, it's um, it's an amazing story. Um, we've talked about the bucket list, the modern day bucket list, which is undoubtedly the world's Dar- the world dart championship. And and congratulations to you and all your team because it really is an astonishing uh, event. I've been privileged enough to go, and um, my voice is still recovering, which tells you everything you need to know about the event. But I wondered, Matt, we haven't talked much about you. Um, you've been in the sports industry for twenty plus years. You've worked with one of the the great promoters. What's on your bucket list? What 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 event would you love to go to that you've never you've never been to that would really float the Matt Porter boat? Um, that's a good question. I've not really thought of that. I mean, I've been I was fortunate enough to see Usain Bolt win the hundred meter gold at the London twenty twelve Olympics. That was pretty special for me. Um, I I'm I'm a, I'm a big football fan, but I'm a big event fan. You know, and, and, you know, when when you work in the industry, you go to events and you look at them through different eyes, don't you? You sort of look at signage and stewards and boring things like that. And, and you don't tend to always watch. You don't tend to always watch the sport. I mean, I was I was at Wembley when we lost to Italy in the in the Euros a couple of years ago, which was a vile experience. But, it you know, regardless of that, I think I. I'd like to, when my son's a bit older, I'd like to take him somewhere pretty special. I don't know what that would be yet, whether it's the, he's getting into golf, whether it's the Masters or Champions League final or the, or the, or or the World Cup final or some, or something like that. Um, I'm going to, I don't, I'm probably giving the terrible answer. I don't really, I don't really know. I mean, I'm. No, it's, I think it's interesting though, because your company, Matchroom, I mean, many would say that the, uh, the World Snooker Championship is a bucket list event, and certainly for British people who've grown up with that BBC coverage, you'd, you'd put it right up there. Um, the, the darts is definitely the modern-day hero. I mean, literally, as you know, I work in the city now. The amount of times I have been asked, how do you get a ticket for, for the darts final? Sort of from September or whenever you... I mean, I know you sell out within... You were telling me you, you sell out within how long? Two days, the whole thing. How many thousand? How many thousand tickets thousand. is that in total? It would, it would be one day if we let more than fifteen thousand people buy tickets on the first day. But we we reward, try and reward our members. Um, uh, this 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 is an interesting one. It's not really sport, or it is. I read somewhere that you guys could potentially, you guys being Matchroom, potentially could have a valuation of a billion dollars, and you could be looking for a listing. So your bucket list is ringing that bell on Wall Street. That's that's the one you should be looking for. Well, we went to the New York Stock Exchange with the players in the first year of doing Madison Square Garden, but we, they didn't let us ring the bell. So maybe that would maybe that would work. I think I've thought of it actually. I think I've thought of it. So my last my my, my lifelong love is Lake Norrient Football Club, and um, my last game as chief exec of Lake Norrient, we lost on penalties to Rotherham United to get into the championship. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to be back on to, on the board at, at Orient now after Barry sold it in 2014. I worked with the the current uh, current chairman to buy the club back in 2017 and a group of other people and we've been we've achieved some success since then we're back in league one now we're in mid-table in league one having been on our knees in the national league before but late norrent haven't been in the second tier of english football since 1982 when i was just two years old so i didn't have any idea what that was all about um but i would like to see late norrent in the second tier so i think my bucket list would be for us the day we get promoted to the second tier of English football, and uh, that does that work? Is that is that a valid answer? That's good. That's yeah. perfect. That's, That's very perfect. Good. That, that works we nicely. Love that. And, and, yeah, and as a, as a late Norian supporter, the the common and garden of bucket list is for them to win a game. Well, I think. So there you've, we you've really go. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
It really steps it up a level. <laughs> don't listen to him, bloody Fulham. I've heard it all before. Don't worry, I've heard it all before. We stuck it to Rotherham. We stuck it to Rotherham for I you. Saw that. I saw that. I saw that. I'll never forgive them. I'll never forgive them. <laughs> Matt, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. You must be absolutely exhausted after no, what no, you've been through the last couple of weeks. So, so thanks for thanks for joining us so no, soon. Thanks after, for finding the time. Crazy, really crazy. crazy. No, thanks for inviting me yeah, on. And and listen, I, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Look, the the best of luck with with everything that follows this year. I think um, it's going to be fascinating to watch the impact that Luke has on on public awareness of darts. And and uh, you know, I wish him the best. And wish you guys the best. And again, thanks, thanks for thanks for Thank you very us. much. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Matthew. Well, fellas, that was a lot of fun. I have to say, I, I was transfixed by the darts. So it's it's uh, it's great to get a little sense of what's happening behind the scenes with it all. I am. Um, I was working in the city during the, 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 the early New Year period, and we used to talk about. I think in the old days, pre-COVID, um, water cooler moments and people chatting away. It was astonishing. Everybody in the office that I work in, in the, in the city of London, everybody was talking about the darts. It was, and obviously having involvement as we are, and we know the Matchroom team, it's, um, it was just brilliant, actually. It was a real, uh, it's, it's, it, for me, it's always wonderful when sports is the true headline and people are really talking about it and it didn't matter who you were and you don't have to be a fan, you just got behind it. It was um, really special. And Matt has been doing it for a long time. I think he's learned from the best. He's, He's definitely one of the apprentices that has grown up with within Matchroom and doing just a phenomenal job. And I think he was very humble about, yes, Paddy Power came in this year and, 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 and did so much, but it's because the foundation is so damn strong, so damn strong. Feels like uh, this time next year, got to be an AYNE day out, hasn't it, fellas? What do you reckon? I think there should be a show from Ali Pali. I think it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Let's do that. But, you know, listen, you know, the, the, the thing with the darts and a little bit the discussion we had there were, we're all basking in, 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 you know, the event and sport and the, the stories and, and, you know, look and everything like that. But honestly, you know, people should study. Um, if they're serious in their jobs and an existing rights holder or a governing body and they think that they've got, you know, some kind of future, they should study what happened to the BDO. And they should study what happened when the Hearn family and um, PDC came along. And they should study a little bit also, uh, you know, this uh, um, eternal debate between do you go behind a paywall and sky and restrict your exposure or do you do it free to air and how does that all work with sponsorship? We've got a live case study of, I would say, pretty significant success right in front of our eyes, well before the lives of this world, well before what's happening everywhere else. You know, that's why I'm I'm really pleased with what's happened because this has been a long time coming. They didn't get get it easy with the BDO. The BDO even today still you know, whine a little bit about, you know, I saw a tweet that were saying things like, oh, yeah, it's as if the all the players just uh, um, appeared from from nowhere to, to play in these PDC events. And there's a whole, um, you know, youth development thing below that. You know, it, it's, it's still the classic thing of sport tearing itself apart with different governing bodies. But in Dart's case, one of them's on the floor. It's called the BDO. And the other one is a raging success. It's called the PDC. And, and people should study that and listen to this interview with Matt. 
Well said, Rog, well said. Well, gentlemen, that's it. The first show of the new year in the books. Uh, our thanks to our guest, Matt Porter, for joining us um, so soon after what was, I'm sure, a hectic couple of weeks. And our thanks, as always, to you for listening. We will be back again uh, for our second show in the new year in the not-too-distant future. But in the meantime, if you're not following us on social media, that's very easy to remedy. You will find us at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E on Twitter. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you'll find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. You will find me at RPM Como, as usual, but I'd like to thank AA, Infinity Sports Cruises, and we'll see them in the next show of The Bucket List. Thank you very much. Oh,